Thank you for downloading this podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the Autumn Programme of Public Events and that you'll stay tuned for the exciting programme of events we have lined up for the new year. In the meantime, we have a new podcast series that we think you might enjoy. LSEIQ is a monthly podcast where we ask some of the smartest social scientists and other experts to answer intelligent questions about economics, politics or society. Recent episodes have tackled questions such as what's the secret to happiness? Could social entrepreneurship be the answer to world poverty? And is our prison system broken? To give you a taste of LSEIQ, the latest episode, which asks why is social mobility declining, will begin playing in a moment. To listen to other episodes and to subscribe, search for LSEIQ in your favourite podcast app or visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ. We'd like to hear your opinion too, so why not join the discussion on social media using the hashtag LSEIQ and please also consider leaving a review on iTunes or the Apple podcast app. Welcome to LSEIQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics or society. Climbing the social ladder by entering an elite profession or earning lots of money is something that many of us aspire to. Yet in Britain today, how far you will progress largely depends on how well your parents did. Younger people are also facing the very real prospect of achieving less than their parents. In this episode, Joanna Bale asks, why is social mobility declining? Rich, thick kids do better than poor, clever children. And when they arrive at school, the situation as they go through gets worse. Those were the words of Michael Gove when he was Education Secretary in 2010, as he cited research which showed that children of low cognitive ability from wealthy backgrounds overtake children of high cognitive ability from poor backgrounds before they even arrive at school. Here's former Prime Minister David Cameron at the 2015 Conservative Party conference echoing those concerns. Now if we tackle the causes of poverty, we can make our country greater. But there's another big social problem we need to fix. In politicians speak, a lack of social mobility. In normal language, people unable to rise from the bottom to the top, or even from the middle to the top, because of their background. Listen to this. Britain has the lowest social mobility in the developed world. Here, the salary you earn is more linked to what your father got paid than in any other major country. And I'm sorry, for us, the Conservatives, the party of aspiration, we cannot accept that. Social scientists measure social mobility as absolute or relative. Absolute mobility is something that can happen to everyone in a generation when the standard of living rises, so they end up better off than their parents at the same age. Relative mobility is where people end up in relation to the position of their parents in society, whether they've moved up or down. I asked Dr Abigail McKnight, Associate Director of the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion at LSE, to explain what's going on. What we saw in the UK, um, certainly over the 80s and 90s, we had strong economic growth um, and we we had growth in absolute mobility. Children were doing better than their parents did in real terms, in terms of in terms of their income, in terms of their earnings. So overall, we saw this boost in absolute mobility, everybody being better off. And it became an expectation that our children would do better than than we did. Um, Interestingly, at the same time, we 
measure falls in relative mobility. But because everybody was getting better off, we cared less about that. So people were, didn't notice it so much because we were, we were all doing better. We were all doing better and our children were doing better. There's a big expansion in professional managerial occupations and associated professional occupations, which meant that there was still a good chance if you came even from a, a quite low-income family background or being able to fill those spaces. There was more than enough for those children from advantaged families to be able to fill those spaces. So there was all this extra room that other people could um, fill in as well. But when economic growth started to slow down in the run-up to the 2008 crisis, everything changed. Since the crisis and that earlier slowdown in growth we see what we call um, less room at the top or no expansion in this room at the top. And that's when it becomes um, much more problematic in terms of boosting social mobility. So absolute mobility now we we believe is, has fallen. So our children, and there have been many research um, reports coming out over, over the last sort of seven or eight year period showing how children, uh, young people of today, uh, the millennials, as they're often referred to, are not doing as well as their parents did before them in terms of home ownership, in terms of income and earnings, and across a whole variety of different measures. Dr McKnight explained how declining social mobility is damaging our economy and our society. We think it's a bad thing because of it's a waste of talent, really, of the children who don't go on and succeed. Uh, so it's a waste of talent that affects them, their families and societies overall. So it, it's likely to mean that productivity and growth are lower as a result of the fact that we waste talent by, um, by these children who are perfectly able or unable to succeed. And, and possibly some of those in uh, the most successful jobs are not necessarily um, having the best um, skills to be there. And also there's just a pure social justice uh, which can cause uh, social unrest and, uh, and it's not the sort of society that we, that we wish to live in. To find out more about Britain's class system, I spoke to Professor Mike Savage, the co-director of LSE's International Inequalities Institute. So Mike, you conducted the largest ever survey of class in the UK through the BBC website called the Great British Class Survey. What did you find... Well, we were interested in thinking about um, how social class divisions have changed over the recent decades, given the amount of change happening in British society. Um, and we were particularly interested in thinking about whether the old-fashioned divide between the middle and working class had been replaced by more subtle, more complex divisions. Uh, and what we found out was that, indeed, uh, that things have changed, and in particular the, the very rich people at the top the most affluent um, elite people have pulled away from the rest of the population. Um, so we argued there's a kind of new elite class in Britain. But also we, we argued that at the bottom levels, uh, there's a group which we call the precariat, who are still characterised by being you know, very badly off and very insecure and relatively deprived. So really it's quite a depressing story about class divisions pulling apart. In the middle layers of the, the social structure, if you like, um, it's much more complex than people, you know, can have subtly different amounts of money, um, cultural resources, social networks. So I think the idea that you can pigeonhole people into middle and working class is, is not so clear now. So tell, tell me more about the elite. How do you define them? We defined the elite in terms of um, having three kinds of capital. So we talk about economic capital, which is your income, your savings, um, the value of your house. 
Um, but we also included measures of your social networks, the kind of people you know, whether they're high status or not, and also uh, what we called cultural capital, which is, you know, um, whether you do highbrow things, whether you go to art galleries, museums, and su such like. So for us, the elite scored very high in all those three characteristics. So just being wealthy, just having a high income, um, wasn't just about money. It also translated into having social networks and uh, having um, advantages in terms of cultural uh, resources and such like. So it's really um, arguing that you know, money passes on to other kinds of advantages too. Uh, that having been said, uh, what is distinctive about the elite is really it's the financial side of it. So, so that the elite are just so much better off than any other class. Um, you know, they might have a bit more, bit more of an exclusive social network than uh, middle class people. They might, you know, be more likely to get the opera. But those aren't so different for more than for many people. But it's the amount of money which is decisive. And what sort of money are we talking? Well, we we measured it just in terms of what um, household income people reported in the survey, and uh, using our our mode of analysis, the average income levels uh, of the seven percent of people who we put in the elite uh, were were um, about eighty nine thousand um, pounds after tax. So it's a lot of money, um, and uh, you know. Houses often worth half a million pounds or more, and such like things like that. Dr. Sam Friedman of LSE Sociology Department has analysed the class backgrounds of some of the people who earn this kind of money. Sam, you look at what's going on in elite professions like law, medicine, media, finance, that kind of thing. What what have you found in your research? So, really, what we looked at is. Um, I suppose the way in which your class background affects your ability to get to the very top in British society. Um, and I suppose most of the focus of work in this area up to this point has been on what's often called fair access. So who gets into these jobs um, and you know, how does your background affect your ability to get in the door in the first place? Um, but often in that agenda there's a sort of assumption that once you get in the door... Um, everything is a, is a nice level, you know, even playing field. Um, uh, and we were sort of wanted to question that. So what we did was we looked at Britain's largest employment survey to begin with, the Labour Force Survey, um, which has just introduced questions about um, what your parents did for a living, which allows us to look um, at social mobility, look at how your sort of class background um, is patterned in terms of specific professions. And then what we did was look at um, earnings in those professions by social background as a way, as a sort of proxy for um, your ability to sort of progress within that profession. And, and the results were really quite striking. What we found was that um, those from working class backgrounds um, earn significantly less, about 17% less, um, in a range of different uh, elite professions. Um, and then interestingly, we, using this data set, we're able to sort of control for a number of things that you might think are sort of legitimate or meritocratic uh, drivers of that inequality. So educational attainment, your level of training, um, how long you've been in that job, all things that you might expect to be drivers of higher earnings. And what we found was that even when you control for that, 
you find that in across these top professions in the UK, those from working class backgrounds are still earning around 7% less than their more privileged colleagues, even when they're otherwise exactly the same on all of these measures. Um, and, and so for us, that was a sort of, uh, I suppose, quite a stark finding that really, um, you know, this, this idea that there is a level playing field within these sort of elite professions is, is, is a bit of a fallacy. Um, and there were some other interesting sort of allied findings there. So we found, for instance, that there's a sort of double disadvantage if you're a woman from a working class background in these professions. Um, we found that also um, this sort of um, class pay gap is even more acute in particular professions. So, you know, lo and behold, the City of London um, and the sort of finance professions is one of the really key areas where, where we find a really strong pay gap. Um, similarly, medicine uh, and IT, and again, also we found that um, you know this is this is a, is a geographical phenomenon as well. It, it does seem that um, you know your your class p- background affects your ability to get on more in London than anywhere else in the UK. Why do you think that that is? What's what's holding people back? Yeah, I mean, I think. It's an interesting question, that, um, and that's really been the sort of focus of the second stage of the project, really, the why question. And to get at that, what we've done is we've focused on on four sort of elite professions, um, and uh, we've tried to look at them in depth, usually through the lens of of a sort of case study of a particular firm within that profession. So we looked at um, accountancy, we've looked at television, uh, we've looked at architecture. We've also looked at, uh, at acting, which has been in the news a lot around the sort of um, the stereotype of the public schoolboy actor getting to the top, the Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatches of this world. Um, and I think, obviously, there are lots of drivers that are quite specific to the occupation, but we have found that there are some sort of, um, I suppose, common drivers across these. Um, w- one of the interesting ones that we found is is there is a sort of culture of, uh, of sponsorship um, that's quite informal, often quite hidden, um, but that's very powerful in structuring people's um, careers in elite occupations. Um, you know, it, it's a sort of, um, you know, in accountancy they talk about it in terms of who who's partner material. And if you are identified normally very early on in your um, in your career as being partner material, you're then put on a sort of obvious fast track. Um, and that is normally quite an explicit sort of um, sponsorship relationship with somebody quite senior who's able to scaffold your career, who's able to allocate um, high-profile clients to you, uh, is able to give you sort of bespoke advice about um, the careers that, you know, or the, the particular sort of options you might um, take in your in your career path, and I suppose the interesting thing for us was that we were one. You know, it, it, you, I suppose the question is, well, what's that got to do with class background? Well, what we found is that actually, um, when you look at the sort of ingredient for how these very strong bond 
relationships are formed in the first place, what's the sort of ingredient that, that fuses people together in the first place? It's almost always something that's actually not really to do with work. It's to do with some sort of more class-cultural similarity about sharing um, particular sort of interests, tastes, hobbies, things like that. And, and often when you've got people to narrate the, the, the sort of genesis of these relationships, it was, it was those sorts of interactions um, and uh, and I think you know that those sorts of things are, are, are in a way seem very powerful to, to explaining um, why you see particularly at the very top of the firms we were looking at uh, quite a homogenous group uh, of people from quite privileged backgrounds. Abigail McKnight has found that less able richer kids are 35% more likely to become higher earners than bright poor kids. She explained that richer parents create what she calls a glass floor to ensure their children's success, regardless of academic ability. So parents are doing exactly the right thing, which is to try and ensure that their children have the best possible outcome that they can. So to succeed in life as best they can. And what parents do um, is to try and help them as much as possible through all the different means that they have available to them. When we live in a very uh, unequal society, as we have in the UK, you're starting off with a group of parents who have very unequal means to help their children to succeed. Uh, so it's perfectly um, reasonable for those parents to be to be working in that way. And what they do is they exploit the structures and the processes that we have within the UK society to gain that advantage. Um, but it has big implications for other children and for our society that we live in. So it's things like um, internships and private tutors and and that kind of thing? So it's a whole variety of different things. We know from the research that they they completely understand that children's uh, basic skills in maths and English are really important. If their children start to slip behind, they buy in extra tuition. There's a very high level of private tuition that goes on in the UK. Um, which puts children at an advantage if their parents can afford to pay for that extra tuition. And that's both in the state system as well as in um, private fee-paying schools. Parents still buy additional tuition for their children uh, to, to make sure they have those really important skills that we know are linked to success later on. The other things they do are about helping their children develop what we might call soft skills, So these might be about behaviours. They do things that help them to uh, improve their self-esteem and and confidence overall. So those kind of soft skills, which we know employers actually are are, um, using as part of the selection process into some of the best best jobs. Um, They do actually, where where the money is there... um, try and ensure their children have a place at a very good school. That might be within a a state school by moving into a a catchment area for a good school, um, exercising the choice that's within the state system. It might be trying to tutor their children to get uh, do well in an 11 plus to get into a grammar school, or it might be a fee-paying private school. So that's another way that they do it. Sam Friedman researched how attending one of Britain's top private schools, such as Eton, means that you are much more likely to reach elite professions than anyone else. The figures are astonishing. We wanted to look at the very top. Um, and to do that, we, we were lucky enough to get the entire historical um, database of, of something called Who's Who, which is a sort of catalogue of the British elite. But the very, very top, we're talking about uh, the top 0.05% of the population, 
Um, so people really normally who have got to um, the most prestigious position within their profession, so judges, uh, fellows of the British Academy, um, uh, positions like that. Um, and what was what's fascinating about this database is that it has um, data on the individual school attended by each entrant. Um, and this allowed us a, a really sort of unprecedented ability to look at the power of, as you say, these um, very elite um, public schools um, in the UK, which you know have a real hold on the British cultural imagination, and and and, and are often speculated as being, you know, the, the sort of behind. Uh, the British establishment and, and, and constantly churning out, you know, the leaders in our society. Um, and we really want to put that to empirical test. Um, and again, the results were really sh- quite striking. Um, at one level, we found, you know, uh, that over time there has been a significant reduction in the power of these schools. Um, their old boys are are not as readily found in, in at the top of British society as they were 100 years ago. But the, the decline um, needs to be seen very much in the wider context of, uh, of persistence rather than sort of outright um, sort of cessation. Um, you know, some of the stats are quite incredible, really. We, fa- we, we compared the chances of, of reaching who's who if he went to one of these schools um, compared to anyone else uh, in the population. And um, alumni of, of, of these nine what are called Clarendon schools. So you mentioned Eton, there's Harrow, St Paul's, Winchester, uh, Merchant Tailors. Um, Your chances of reaching the elite if you've been to one of those nine schools is 94 times that of somebody who has uh, gone to any other school in the UK, and that's still today. Uh, And I suppose I think that sort of attests to um, the power of... um, Resources that are coming from both, I'm sure, um, the fact that the children that go to those schools are from very privileged class backgrounds, but also that there's something uh, in this sort of fabric of the education that's being um, given at those schools. Uh, and, and, and I suppose resources that are perhaps not even about curricula, not necessarily about the sort of contents of, um, of the education in academic terms, um, that is sort of acting as a signal, I suppose, um, that's quite robust in allowing people to sort of follow a particular elite trajectory. A lot of the elite firms we've done our wider research on have talked about the importance of competencies that I would say are not really um, very clearly correlated with intelligence or ability, things like polish. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, polish might not look like the antiquated British gentleman when, you know, top accountancy firms ask for it on uh, from their, you know, their middle managers. But it's still about a particular sort of embodied ease, um, a particular um, sort of self-presentational uh, confidence and poise that is perhaps cultivated much more readily in both privileged families and even more so in the sort of extracurricular um, education at one of these top private schools. You used um, a, quite a funny uh, comparison with um, uh, Harry and Phil Carrot, so can you explain? I have a, I have a sort of um, slightly annoying habit. My research before I started looking at elites was about comedy. Uh, in a past life, I was actually a comedy critic and wrote my PhD all about how comedy marks class boundaries. Um, so I have an annoying habit of bringing comedy characters into my research, but the, the, 
the idea here was this sense that I suppose um, Harry Enfield has this um, fantastic character that he sort of brought forth in the 80s, interestingly, um, called Tim Nice But Dim. Um, and I suppose Tim Nice But Dim is this comic character, uh, this old boy, this public school boy, who does um, very well in life, you know, get in, in, in the comedy sketches he's a he's a successful banker um but you know he gets on despite being and this is the joke demonstrably dim um and i suppose the point really there is the sort of implication is you know that going to one of these schools can sort of mask um actually not being particularly academically bright or intelligent um, and give you resources that, you know, in a perhaps not very meritorious way, get you to the top. And I suppose what we were sort of talking about in the paper was that these schools um, are perhaps not able to um, provide that sort of trajectory anymore. Um, there is a, you know, the sort of the move towards um, sort of uh, an emphasis on credentials in the education system has become so widespread that you know, it's it's less easy perhaps to sort of get ahead if you really are not academically bright. Um, but, you know, so our, our point was really that, that, that Tim Nice but Dim may not be able to get to, you know, the very top of British society. But I suppose our, our, our point really there was that the non-educational resources still play a role. And so Tim Nice but Dim is still, is still doing well. Uh, and certainly better than he we he perhaps should do if we were living in a in a society that truly rewarded um, merit, ability, and intelligence um, as it should. Our point is um, that while you know a hundred years ago Tim Nice but Dim may have become a, a high court judge, uh, in you know nowadays um, he may only become a lawyer. I was interested to know what our experts would do to help improve social mobility. Mike Savage talked about the influence of Thomas Piketty, the celebrated economist whose work focuses on wealth and inequality. Yeah, so so really the interest in inequality has has, um, has really mushroomed in the last 10 or 15 years. And I think a lot of it is driven by the American experience, because in America, more than any other country, you know, the 1% have really surged ahead. Um, I think a lot of the interest comes from concerns about taxation rates and how governments have reduced taxation on high earners in many countries, including the UK, as well as in the US. Um, and I think uh, what's also become increasingly manifest, and here I think Piketty's work has been really, really influential, is to say that um, you know if you're earning a high income in one year, uh, what that allows you to do is to store up the income in terms of you can buy stocks and shares, have savings, buy expensive houses. And therefore, year on year, there's a tendency for people with lots of money to accumulate more money. And so it's, I mean, I always think it's a bit like climate change, you know, that, that um, unless you do something about it, the situation will get worse in terms of people with, with lots of resources will get more and more resources and they'll pull further ahead. So I think um, the economic trends are clear. I think what's also apparent is simply uh, this feeling that uh, you know, the elites are out of touch. And we saw this in the Brexit uh, referendum here, when um, many of the people voting uh, in favour of Brexit felt that, you know, they weren't being consulted by the liberal establishment and political classes. We saw it with Donald Trump's election in the US. 
So I think a lot of people are worried about the future of societies, um, how politicians are out of touch, how they feel included in society, uh, which is all to do with the fact that the, the, the wealthy elites are pulling away, I think. So economic issues also overlap with political issues. Thomas Piketty proposed a 1% annual wealth tax. Uh, and obviously there are also um, people talk about inheritance tax and um, other kinds of taxes. Um, is, is there anything else you think that should be done or that could be done to, to try and counter this? Yeah, no, I think taxation has to be crucial. Um, and I think increasing taxation, both in terms of in- income tax taxation at the top, which is something which the Labour Party proposed at the last election, would help. Um, it is interesting that inheritance tax um, is not popular, if you, if you ask people. Even though most people won't benefit from, um, they won't have to pay inheritance tax. Nonetheless, uh, you know, it's not a huge support for it, which is rather surprising. And what about education? Do you think that's, um, that's an important factor or do you think it's irrelevant, really? Well, education um, is one of the things we look at in our book. Uh, and I think we have a long history of thinking if we improve education, that will resolve inequality. But actually, that's not the experience, because what has happened in many, many, if not all, uh, societies in the Second World War is, is that big investments in education, growth of universities, growth of higher education, has gone hand in hand, actually, with the increase of inequality. Um, and actually, um, many of the elite universities, you know, they are largely educating uh, very well-off kids. So I think you know, education is obviously a good thing in its own, in its own terms, uh, and it, it allows people to get skills and feel empowered and so forth. But I don't think it's enough by itself to tackle inequality unless there's quite careful thought about how you, how you really widen access or you create innovative ways of teaching which engage different kinds of people. So I think the idea that you can kind of just you know, put more money into education as a means of resolving inequality is, it doesn't work. I also asked Abigail McKnight about education. Obviously, uh, the state can't really compete with um, wealthy parents and the, the amount of resources wealthy parents have to, to bring their children on and to, to give them all the advantages. Um, so do you think there are wider issues here, that there are wider policies that could be implemented to, to try to help? Yes, absolutely. So we've, we've written about what we call the arms race in education where we have very high levels of economic inequality, where um, money can buy you higher levels of educational attainment. That's not just in terms of, you know, buying a qualification. We're talking about all of the things we've discussed so far and about getting good places in in universities or further education. Um, That where those very high levels of inequality exist, it's very, very hard for a state... uh, uh, through public expenditure to try and iron out those those differences. Um, also, where um, there remains a very high return to certain um, qualifications, then this will perpetuate the system. Um, and in, I mean, we we so we write about this and we say in a, you know in an arms race between um, the state and wealthy parents, the state can't win can't win in, in terms of that. So your your education policy is limited. Um, in terms of trying to tackle those um, inequalities. Here's Sam Friedman on how he would change things for the better. It's quite obvious that one of the things that needs to happen, that isn't happening at the moment, but that there is sort of signs that that it might be happening (laughs) um, in the near future, is simply that, um, you know, social mobility is actually um, measured, monitored, 
um, and thought about in the routine workings of elite firms and organisations, and that means ultimately collecting data on it. Um, at the moment, that's not done, and part of the reason that's not done is that it, class class background is not a protected characteristic. Um, so, you know, perhaps at the root of this is, if I was Prime Minister for a day, I would make, it would be a very thorny and difficult thing to do and define, but I would make try and make social class background at one of our protected characteristics and, and compel um, organisations to collect data on their staff in that way so that there is a sort of scale we have an understanding of the, of, the, of, the, of the scale of the problem and I think you know in that sense you can sort of take a lot of cues from the work that, brilliant work that's been done around gender and ethnicity on that front um, and you see the way in which you know organisations particularly around for instance the gender pay gap are, are being forced their hand is being forced by government to, to, to actually seriously redress these issues. And of course, that's not going to necessarily change everything in this regard. The, a lot of these things are structural and they're societal in terms of their drivers, but uh, I think that would probably be the most obvious single thing that you could do to, to bring about change in this domain. Mm-hmm. Would you do anything about the private school system if you were Prime Minister? <laughs> um, yes, I'd abolish all private schools. I, I mean, I, I, I would say that as, 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 yeah, as, as straightforwardly as that. Um, I, uh, I, I find it hard to see. Um, but, you know, I'm also aware that that's the sort of thing that you might say on a podcast and then 20 years later, right come back to haunt you I don't know it's a, it, well yeah that's a quite a controversial thing to say but yeah. um, it's a fair comment I think it's a, one of those difficult ones where yeah. I, you know I think in my mind in terms of the reproduction of advantage in, in Britain it's just one of the most clear cut um, sort of inhibitors of, um, of fairness so you know it's an obvious candidate mm-hmm. um, it's not to say that there are easy ways to create a fully equitable education system and in terms of how you set up other types of schooling, but I don't think private schooling is any way the, the, the answer um, in terms of, you know, it's similar to me in terms of an inheritance um, tax and things like that. You know, I, I sort of, to me, those are some of the ob- most obvious political levers to redress these sorts of issues, but they're not very popular, (laughs) interestingly enough. Isn't it the case in Scandinavia where there's not so much of this inequality that there is a a much uh, smaller private school system? Yeah, yeah, there is. I mean, there's lots of education systems which have have much much smaller private sectors, and their private sectors are often sort of more lifestyle orientated, you know, sort of Steiner style, Mm. rather than... This, you know, we've got obviously a very long history of, 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 of sort of elite formation through a particular type of private school education, and, and which is, you know, embodied by those, those Clarendon schools. But you would see hundreds of other private schools in the UK actively trying to sort of mirror those schools. Finally, Abigail McKnight's solution to improve social mobility. The one, the really big thing is to tackle economic inequality because of all of the other things come down through those channels. 
the fact that parents in one generation have got very unequal means in which they can use to improve the outcomes of their children is the, the biggest driving force. You can play around and, and improve the structures and things that are in place to try and even out those differences. But to start with, the playing field is not level. And until we address economic inequality, we can't really address the very high levels of poverty that we have, uh, the low levels of social mobility that we have, um, and the extent to which these then will continue to be perpetuated into the future. So we need to think about taxation seriously. We need to think about um, how we might tax capital and wealth. I was talking to Abigail shortly after the leak to the media of the so-called Paradise Papers, which detailed how the world's biggest businesses, heads of state and global figures in politics, entertainment and sport have sheltered their wealth in secretive tax havens. What we've seen over the last few weeks is how those who've got very high levels of income and wealth, are able to avoid paying the same levels of tax that the rest of us pay. When inequality goes up, then you get greater concentration of income and wealth in the hands of a few who then are paying low levels of tax. That reduces the amount which the government can then spend on the types of policies, services that we all benefit from. um, And it reduces, so it reduces the tax take overall and it continues to increase inequality. So our experts agree that declining social mobility is bad for Britain, but it could be improved by tackling economic inequality through tax reform and by compelling organisations to monitor social class in the same way as gender and ethnicity. Why not tell us what you think using the hashtag LSE? IQ. This episode of LSEIQ was brought to you by Joanna Bale, Tom Williams, James Ratti and Shay Forbes-Taylor. It was based in part on the following research. Social Class in the 21st Century by Mike Savage. Glass Floors and Slow Growth, a recipe for deepening inequality and hampering social mobility by Abigail McKnight and Richard Reeves. The Decline and Persistence of the Old Boy, Private Schools and Elite Recruitment, 1897-2016, to by Aaron Reeves, Sam Friedman, Charles Rahal and Magna Fleming, and The Class Pay Gap in Britain's Higher Professional and Managerial Occupations, by Daniel Lorison and Sam Friedman. For more episodes of this podcast, and to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ, or search for LSE IQ in your favourite podcast app. In our next episode, we ask, what makes a great leader? This will be released on Tuesday 9th of January, one week after our usual release schedule for the first Tuesday of the month. We hope you'll join us then, and in the meantime, please consider leaving us a review on the Apple Podcasts app or on iTunes.